We have been working through Luke for the last year and a half, and what we come to this morning is the climax of the story. It's the climax of the story, but it's also the, the core and the heart of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian, why we do the things we do and say the things we say and believe the things that we believe. One of the things I like to do before we jump into this text is to read a parallel text in the Gospel of John. Each gospel records the death of Christ, and each one has many of the same elements, but also have other added elements that other gospel writers left out. So to get a a more complete picture of what's going on, and also to kind of do a a participation here, we want to do a, a, a responsive reading. So I will read the part that says... Uh, leader, and you will say the part that says all, and we'll, we'll read this text together. From the Gospel of John, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and he went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and a sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, The word of the Lord from the Gospel of John. I'm not sure about you, but every time I participate in a scripture reading like that, it's always hard for me. I can tell you the part that's hard for me. It's the part where I, as a member of the congregation, have to lift up my voice and say, Crucify him crucify him. I don't know, was, it, was that hard for any of you? Did it feel a little off? Did it feel a little awkward to say that out loud? It did. And, and, and rightly so. But it's important for us to do that. It's important for us to remember that because we have to remember that the reason that Christ went to the cross, the reason that Christ had to spill his blood and die that sort of death was on our behalf. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at Luke chapter 23. We want to look at the cross of Christ. And we want to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die this type of death? And how is it tied to us? So we want to look at the reason. And here's the three answers. That Jesus died as a blood sacrifice. That Jesus died to give us mercy. And Jesus died 
to reconcile us to God. So let's begin with this first point here. The fact that Jesus died as a blood sacrifice. Now this sounds awfully strange to our modern ears, doesn't it? That whenever we hear of a blood sacrifice, we typically think, well, that, that's, that's, for, that's for not modern Western people, that this is odd and this is strange. Uh, but that's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus died as a blood sacrifice. And we'll get into the reasons why. But I think it's also important for us to realize that the death that Jesus died was a bloody death. And this is always hard for me to go through and hard to talk about. Um, and I'm actually glad that this is not the fifth Sunday with all the kids in here. Uh, because it, 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 it's quite shocking. That whenever we look at Luke chapter 23 verse 16. And Luke in my version of the Bible that I'm reading. It talks about how uh, Pilate had Jesus whipped. John, in the gospel that we read out loud, talked about it a little bit differently. They translated the word differently. And it doesn't say that Jesus was whipped, but rather that Jesus was flogged. Many of the other translations will say that Jesus is, 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 um, is scourged. And he went through a scourging. And what this is, this is not just what you might think of as a whip with a bull whip. Uh, but this is what was done before crucifixion. That you had a whip with many different pieces of leather on it. And on each piece of leather, there was tied a piece of metal or bone. So that when one of the victims of crucifixion was whipped, it did not just leave marks, but it ripped the skin away from the body. Eusebius, who lived in 300 A.D., talked about the scourgings that Christians went through. Sometimes it was done as a punishment alone. Sometimes it was tied to a, a larger punishment like crucifixion. But Eusebius said that when the Christians were scourged, they were sometimes scourged to the point where their organs could be seen. This was in part done by the Romans. And this sounds unreal, but it was done by the Romans in part as an act of mercy. Because the scourging that one went through before crucifixion actually hastened the death of one on the cross. That if they did not scourge the person as they went to the cross, that they could actually stay on the cross for many days before passing away. Crucifixion itself was also a, a bloody way to die. After the scourging, we see this in verse 26 of chapter 23. Uh, verse 26, it says uh, that, the, that the victim of crucifixion, after he was scourged and whipped, would then have to carry the cross beam of the cross to the place of execution. In Jesus' case, he did not make it very far before he, he fell in exhaustion. And they had to recruit one of the bystanders to pick the cross up and carry it to the place of execution the rest of the way. Once they were at the place of execution, the Romans would do one of two things. If they wanted to extend the time on the cross, what they would do is they would tie the person to the cross with ropes. If they wanted to hasten death and make it a more of a quick death, they would nail the person to the cross through the wrist bones and through the heel bone. For Jesus, they were wanting him to die quickly. 
because it was the day before the Sabbath. It was the day before the Passover. And so they did not want to enrage Jews by leaving people up over those uh, days. So they nailed him to the cross. Death came to a person through a variety of ways. Some people died on crosses because of the sheer blood loss. Some people died on crosses because of heart failure, some of exhaustion, some of asphyxiation. Uh, At some point, if a person was not dying on the cross, they would go through and break their legs, which would then cause uh, asphyxiation and death on the cross. In Jesus' case, when the soldiers came by to break his legs, they found him already dead. And so to ensure that he was dead, they pierced him in his side with a spear. Jesus died a very bloody death. But a bloody death was what was demanded of God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 explains that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That Jesus had to die a death that was tied to blood in order for there to be a forgiveness of sins. And once again, there's confusion about this in our society. So what I want to do is I want to trace through Scripture of why there needed to be a, a bloody sacrifice to pay for our sins. And there is a thread through Scripture that we can see this. The first place, in fact, if you want to write these down, I don't have the verses on the screen, I'll read them. But if you want to write them down and look at them later, I'd encourage you to do that. One of the things that we see is that in Scripture, uh, blood is oftentimes equated to life. You ever hear the term, one's life, blood? There's a connection between someone's life and the blood that flows through their veins. We see this in the book of Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. When Moses was giving the laws of God to the people of God, one of the things he instructed them to do was to not eat meat raw, not to eat bloody meat. And this was his explanation in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So what Moses is telling the Israelites is that there is life within the blood and that God has given blood to cover up the sins of people. That it is the blood of that animal that gives them atonement. You might say, why is blood needed for atonement? We can go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 and we see that there is a demand for life as a consequence of our sin. Whenever God was in the garden, he was with Adam, and he was giving Adam his one law he had to obey. This is the commandment that God gave Adam. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What God was telling Adam is that when you rebel against the God of life, when you reject the God of life, then your life is demanded. It's one of the reasons why I think we have to take sin seriously. 
We have to take sin seriously in our own lives. If you're a parent, you have to take sin seriously in the life of your kids because there is, there is no small sin. Yes, there are degrees of it. I believe that some are worse than others, but every sin demands life. You break one aspect of law, of God's law, you've broken it all. And so it was at that time, whenever Adam sinned against God and his life was then demanded for payment of his sin, that animal sacrifices began. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that whenever Adam and Eve broke God's law and they found themselves naked, it was the first time that they felt shame and that they felt guilt. And so what does God do to cover their shame and their guilt? In Genesis 3.21, it says that the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So to cover one's shame, to cover one's guilt, what God did is he took the life of an animal to cover their shame and guilt. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there is this picture where a sign of blood must be given in order to escape judgment. The way that our sins are paid for, the way that we escape the judgment of God is through blood. Think about Exodus. Whenever Moses was in Egypt and the people of God were enslaved under Pharaoh, you had the last plague. Do y'all remember the last plague, what the last plague was? It was the death angel going from door to door. And it was the taking of what? Of of a life. So for that life to be saved, what had to be done. Blood had to be painted on the doorpost of that house. That's what it says in the book of Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 and 13. They must take some of the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. The blood on the house where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do you all see that? That blood had to be shed. And the way that the people of God escaped the judgment of God was by being underneath the blood of the Lamb. And whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to the Jordan to be baptized, you all remember what he said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. These animals which were sacrificed throughout the Old Testament, what they were, were shadows and signposts. They were shadows and signposts saying, yes, there must be life for life. You reject the God of life, it costs you your life. And the way that your life is protected is by being underneath the blood of God of the lamb. Jesus was a fulfillment of every animal sacrifice. He was a fulfillment of every drop of blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. He was saying, this is what it's about. Jesus paid the price for our sins with his blood, with his life. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says this, God made the one who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
The song we sang in the service today, I love it. It's an old hymn. Uh, It says this, What can wash my sin away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our shame that we live with in this world? If there is no God, if there is no Jesus, and truth is relative, if you're guilty or if you're feeling guilty, the only thing you can be guilty of is feeling guilty. But we believe that guilt and shame is real. It's a result of our sin. And the only way to deal with our sin is to trust that Christ paid the cost for it. I think one of the ways that we approach our guilt, one of the ways that we approach our shame, one of the ways that we approach our sin, even as Christians, sometimes we fall into these these habits. But one of the things that we do is we tend to minimize our sin. I know I do this sometimes. We begin to say, well, I'm I'm not that bad. Or I'm not as bad as, as those other people out there. And we try and build ourselves up by minimizing our sin. Sometimes we deal with the guilt of our sin because we try to justify it. I would have never have said that. I would have never had done that had that person not did what they have done. Or had that situation not unfolded that way. And we justify our sin. Sometimes we deal with our guilt, with our shame, with our rejection of God. Sometimes we do that by trying to earn our own way back into God's good graces. We try to atone for our past mistakes by changing our ways. But what the Bible teaches is that there is no way for us to earn our salvation. But that the only way that our sins can be atoned for is through the blood of Christ. I love that we take communion every week. It's a time for me to to worship God. It's a time for me to renew the covenant that I've made with Christ. And I always love the verse that that Neil references when we do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul then begins to state the words of institution that Jesus spoke at the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body broken for you. This cup represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of many sins. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, the Apostle Paul tells us why we do this. For often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. One of the things we need to do as followers of Christ is to not forget the cross of Christ. 
One of the things that we need to do as followers of Christ is to continue to proclaim the cross of Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is by gathering on Sunday and lifting our voices up in song, by taking of this communion. But another way that we proclaim the death of Christ is through the confession of our sins. I think sometimes when we sin, we say something, we do something, we hurt someone, sometimes we feel remorse and we just kind of make an agreement in our own minds, like, well, I'm not going to do that again. But what scripture calls us to do is that when we realize we have sinned, when we've said something, when we've done something that breaks the command of God, that has hurt someone else, one of the things that we need to do is to confess that sin to God. And every time we confess sin to God, you know what we're doing? We are proclaiming the death of Christ again. We're going back to that time on the cross where Jesus made atonement for us. One of the things we encourage in our church is, is that we should know people well enough is that we, we confess our sins to one another. Sometimes if you've sinned against somebody, you need to reconcile and you need to go to that person and confess. But sometimes if we've done something, we just go to a brother or sister in Christ that we trust and we say, man, I, I need to tell somebody this. I need to confess the sin. If that happens, if you find yourself in the role where somebody's coming to you and they're confessing sin, one of the things that you need to do is you need to make sure that in that conversation, you point that person back to the cross of Christ. You say, brother, sister, you, you need to remember that in Christ, you have forgiveness. That Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. We proclaim Christ. Christ died a bloody death as a sacrifice for our sin. And he did that so that we can have mercy. This is the next theme that we see written throughout Luke chapter 23. Is we see the mercy of Christ written throughout these pages. And I want to go through our text today pointing out all the pictures of mercy that Jesus did while he was being crucified. The first one I see is in Luke chapter 23, verse 27 through 28, when this is what the scripture says. A large crowd of people followed him. They followed Jesus, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. When Jesus was on his way to his execution where an innocent man was on his way to face death for other people, his thought and his concern wasn't about himself, but was on the mercy of other people. Jesus showed mercy for the daughters of Jerusalem. We see that Jesus showed mercy not only to the people of God there, but also to his very executioners. Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. That's what he said to the executioners, to the ones who would nail him to the cross, to the ones who would mock him, to the ones that would pierce his side. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And we are, we are reminded, Christians, that as the followers of Christ, we need to have that same heart. That if somebody has sinned against you, if someone has betrayed you, if someone has hurt you, if you are in Christ, 
You pray the same prayer. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We do not hold grudges. We do not hold on to our hate. We do not hold on to our anger as Christians. Why? Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. And as he has forgiven us, so we forgive other people. We see the mercy in Christ on the cross when he showed mercy to the sinner crucified beside him. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One stood there mocking him. If you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, rescue yourself and rescue us with you. But the other thief beside Christ said, what are you doing? Like, we are receiving punishment for our lawlessness. But this man has done nothing wrong. And this is what he asked of Jesus. It says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's almost like this thief on the cross understood something that none of the disciples did. That though Jesus was dying on the cross, he is still king. And his death does not mean the end of his work and the end of his kingdom, but the beginning of it. And the thief on the cross said, I want to be a part of that kingdom. And Jesus said, you are and you will be. Christ has shown mercy for sinners. J.C. Ryle says, never does a person see any beauty in Christ as Savior until they first discover that they are lost and a ruined sinner. We will never see the value of Christ on the cross. We will never see the value of the sacrifice that he made until we first recognize and realize that we are broken, that we are sinners, and that we need a Savior. And Christ has come to give mercy for people who realize that. One of my favorite pictures of mercy is the last one that we'll mention. It's found in Luke 23, verse 46 through 47. It says that when Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And after saying this, he breathed his last. But when a centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. When this Roman centurion saw how Jesus was mocked but did not mock in return, when he saw his innocence but yet how he died as one who was guilty, what did he do? He responded by glorifying God and he received the mercy of God. Christ came to die as a bloody sacrifice so that we might receive God's mercy. Do you realize what this means? It means that we are never so wicked and sinful that God will not show us mercy. That we come to God broken. We come to God sinful. We come to God in our wickedness. And it's at that point that he gives us atonement for our sins. 
And he puts the righteousness of Christ upon us. But it also should be an encouragement for you believers in the confidence that we can have in life. Think about the connection to what we're reading here in Luke with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Verse 28, it says this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. Do you see what that says? He's saying all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Then he says this in verse 31. And if you're looking at this in your Bibles, this is one of the things that, that annoys me about modern translations. It breaks it up with a heading. If y'all, if y'all have your Bibles, every now and again there will be a heading that the editors put in there. And they put that break right between verse 30 and 31. And, and, it, and it bothers me because it ruins the flow of what Paul is saying here. And what he is saying is connected. All things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And then it says this in verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Do you see the connection there? That, that, that God is saying, I loved you so much and I love you so much that I am willing to send my son to be a bloody sacrifice so that you can receive my mercy. And since I love you that much and that is the sign of my love, don't you know that I'm going to take care of you in every other aspect of your life? That every trial you face, every disappointment you face, every loss you face, God says, I will take that and I will make something beautiful out of it. I will take that because of my great love for you and I've shown you my love in Christ dying on the cross and I will make something beautiful out of it. I, um, I found my gardening, I, my, my dad is like expert gardener and his gardens always put mine to shame. Uh, and so I've, I've devolved into planting easy stuff that kind of grows on its own, like jalapeno peppers grow great in Texas. Um, everything else, not so much for me. But, but, but one of the things I've started doing is amongst all my, my, my plants that are already dead, I, I, I started planting uh, flower seeds. And I love it because it just, they grow fast, they grow good, and they bloom And amongst all my now dead tomato plants, I have these beautiful flowers. What has to happen for that flower to bloom? For that flower to bloom, the seed has to first die in the ground and be buried. But once it's dead and buried, it grows up and creates something beautiful. Every loss you face in this life, every bit of pain, God says, it's a seed that's going to die and I'm going to create a flower out of it. God is working in your life. He did this for his own glory and for your good. 
So let us delight in Christ. Christ Community Church, let's stand and pray.